Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy, then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. Hey, everybody. This is Matty Kay. Today, I am speaking with Jesse Isinger. He is a senior editor and reporter with ProPublica and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Chicken Shit Club. He has a lot of excellent stories about reporting on malfeasance in the financial sector, and his own personal story is really intriguing as well. Please listen and enjoy. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on Stand the- clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? Man, HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. You stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his Sexual toenails at the Hey everyone, welcome to the Working Experience Podcast. I am speaking today with Jesse Isinger, senior reporter at ProPublica. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. He was previously the Wall Street editor of Condé Nast Profile and a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. He is also the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Chicken Shit Club which discusses the reluctance of our judicial system 
to prosecute financial crimes. Uh, did I characterize that correctly? Yes, correct. Uh, especially um, prosecuting individuals accused of financial crimes. Yeah, I want to um, uh, sort of talk about you and journalism and the, the industry of journalism, but I definitely want to get into the book because I know very little about the financial world and it was just, it was very accessible to me to be able to sort of understand how, you know, people used to prosecute these crimes and then they fell off from prosecuting them, it seems. So I just wanted um, you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to journalism. Sure. Um, well, uh, I'm a senior reporter and editor at ProPublica. ProPublica is a nonprofit. We do investigative journalism. Uh, what is investigative journalism? Investigative journalism is uh, a kind of uh, BS branding term for uh, all what all journalism really should be, which is that we um, try to figure out why something is happening, um, not just that it is happening, and we try to hold the powerful accountable and expose abuses of power. Um, and uh, ProPublica has existed for about a decade, and I've been here for about nine and a half years. Um, we cover everything from healthcare to national security to civil justice, and I do a lot of business and financial reporting, which um, also spills over to covering um, and editing coverage of the Trump administration and uh, the regulatory state, um, or the deregulatory state, as it were. Uh, and being a nonprofit, we um, raise money from foundations and wealthy individuals and to have small dollar individual donations um, and we don't have to make money so we're just pouring everything that we get into journalism there's no profit motive um, uh, just the glory the glory uh, <laughs> and the prize and yeah. uh, all those prizes uh, and um, I've been a reporter since the early 1990s so I guess I'm going on um, well over 25 years of being a reporter Reporter. Um, it's the only thing I've really done since uh, I uh, graduated from college. I'm probably the least educated member of my family um, going back generations, uh, but um, I kind of fell into it randomly, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, went down to Chile um, the, in South America with my uh, girlfriend at the time and um, started in business journalism and um, down in Chile, uh, uh, the only problem was that I hadn't done any journalism. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about finance, and I didn't speak Spanish. So those were several strikes against me, I think four. So you set up a challenge <laughs> exactly. for yourself. Uh, I've always been, uh, I've been up for challenges. So um, you were kind of willing just to throw, well, why Chile? Uh, well, this shows you my journalistic instincts um, because we picked it because it was safe <laughs> and oh, uh, it yeah. didn't seem like a lot was going on there. Um, uh, so, yes, it wasn't Colombia at the time or Brazil or something, someplace that was actually interesting. Um, uh, it was a beautiful country. It was pretty boring. Um, in fact, the economy was pretty strong and uh, nobody was interested in the uh, the rest of the world and news from Chile except uh, about the markets. And so if I were to do journalism, I needed to write about the stock market, the bond market. And they, you know, the biggest accomplishment at the time was that they had low inflation and low interest rates. So how did you, uh, you said you kind of fell into it. How did you 
come to financial reporting specifically? Well, that was it. I um, got a job uh, after being fired from my first job in Chile. I got a job as a um, reporter for a newsletter, an English language business newsletter. And I didn't really know anything about business, but um, this guy uh, was a great, wonderful editor um, who owned the the place and was uh, also edited it. Um, And um, he liked to take uh, expats who were living in um, uh, Chile and uh, were easily exploited. And so I got paid very little money, um, but I got a great training and he would send us out to cover uh, whatever business stories were kind of hot. So I did stuff on um, the hotel business, you know, there was a lot of tourism in Chile and, um, I did stuff on, uh, the development of a, uh, subway that I don't think, I'm not sure if it ever got built. And, um, uh, and so that was what he, what people were interested in was business. And then I, I got a, I became a stringer for a crazy, uh, newswire that had been started by the Japanese. Um, I'm sorry, you, you said a, you said a stringer. Yeah. A stringer is, um, like not an official correspondent. You're not actually getting paid, um, just to be on call. You're not getting a salary. A stringer is, um, you get paid piecemeal for a story. So, okay. um, um, and so it's kind of like a, it's a junior league foreign correspondent. Um, and this, uh, my roommate at the time left, um, Chile and he had been a stringer for this new Japanese newswire, um, that had just launched. And so he, I inherited it. Um, and, uh, he was a pretty experienced journalist. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but they didn't really know that or care. Um, and so I wrote on the Chilean stock market. I did a report. I think every week, maybe, on um, the Chilean stock market and the Chilean bond market for this Japanese newswire, and um, uh, they paid me a little bit of money. Nice. Okay. So you were learning as you went, it sounds like. Oh, yes. I mean, um, so I, I, I told you that the first job that I had, I was, I'd gotten um, down in Chile was doing a kind of translation service, um, of the biggest news stories of the day for people who are interested. Um, and it was an email service and I had never really seen email. This is the early nineties. There, some people had email, but it wasn't really, um, very frequently used and it would send an email, um, to yeah, a collection of people who were interested in Chile, um, around the world, um, in English. And, um, the problem was, as I say, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't speak any Spanish, um, but I sort of thought that I would be able to read it because I could read French. And so that didn't actually turn out to be true. I mean, the way I got the job was he, um, he was also very, very cheap, this guy. And, um, so he, and I came very cheaply, he paid me $10 a day and, um, uh, and he asked me, how's your Spanish? And I, I truthfully told him it's improving. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, it, that was true. Yeah. From a very, very low base. Right. And, uh, and so my girlfriend at the time, we traveled around the country and we um, read a newspaper story all day, which took us hours. And we, uh, we put on, I put flashcards together. So I had hundreds of flashcards after the end of this 
uh, three-week trip. Um, and so I knew a lot of words. Uh, we'd, we'd read a bunch of very strange articles, like one about dredging the river that went through the main capital of Santiago. Um, so I knew riverbank and dredge um, and strange words like that. But I, um, I didn't know any grammar, so I couldn't tell when something was happening or you know, right. anything like that. Um, and so I, I, I kept... I, held on to this uh, job maybe for about three months uh, or so, somewhat inexplicably, but finally um, it caught up to me and he fired me. And uh, that day I got a job at this business language newspaper. And um, since then I have not been unemployed, which is something of a minor miracle. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to say I have employed that same thought process many times of well, I kind of know this, so I'll take a job doing it, and uh, a teaching job I had in the South Bronx years ago. I said, yeah, I can teach music, which was absolutely untrue. There was no <laughs> truth to that. I could play guitar a little bit, so I translated that into, yes, sure, I can teach music, and no, that wasn't true. So, well, I remember one girl said, Mr., I don't think you know what you're doing, and I was like, wow, that's, that's very insightful. That is very insightful. I have no idea. That's very funny. Yeah, yeah you know, um, there is a kind of arrogance of youth, um, but uh, if I had really thought about all, all how much I didn't know, I would never have started down this path at all. Um, so eventually, you just kind of you know, have to plunge in um, and, uh, uh, you know, what was great about working at these places was that I, um, could screw up and I did screw up spectacularly, but no one really read these publications. So <laughs> nobody really could see for two years. I essentially wrote for all publications that uh, literally had no readers and um that uh, saved me from a bunch of spectacular mistakes and it was great on the job training so you could kind of practice exactly get your chops down all right so um so you're in chile and then you came back to the united states yes this uh, girlfriend um uh broke up with me sadly a big um heartbreak. And then I came back to New York and I worked another year at, um, this, uh, for, as at, at this news organization, the um, Japanese Newswire, uh, and then, um, made a bunch of more mistakes, uh, started learning a little bit about the markets and then got a job at Dow Jones Newswires, um, which was the big business newswire at the time, uh, the ticker. Uh, and, um, and that was sort of, was my path to, uh, staying in business journalism. I always assumed that I would leave it. I didn't really have respect for journalism. Um, I thought that the real intellectuals were, uh, academics and that you, to be a respectable, um, professional, you needed a graduate degree, uh, especially a PhD. Um, so I assumed that I would go and get that like, uh, my father and my grandfather and my uncles and uh, my mom and um, uh, yeah. but in fact uh, I didn't uh, I I never could figure that out never figured out what I wanted to do in grad school and then gradually came to realize that uh, I really loved journalism. So you um, so what what year did you come back to the United States? This is 1993. I graduated college in 92, and I spent um, a year in Chile, and then I come back in the fall of 93. 
and you were working for the Japanese uh, news service, and then you progressed in your career. You got other jobs. Yeah, I, um, I I sort of bounced from job to job. Uh, I spent two years, um, at, a little over, around two years at each place for a while, and then eventually landed at the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Um, so I, I, just to go back for a second, I thought it was interesting that you made the distinction between investigative journalism and, I guess, everything else. Could, could you elaborate a little bit more on that sort of, that kind of sounds like an ethos. Yeah. Um, well, uh, investigative journalism is um, kind of the, it has the best branding of all journalism. Um, it's kind of regarded as um, the highest form of it, you know, holding the powerful accountable. Um, and not only holding the powerful accountable, but often it's um, long form journalism that's very dense um, and has got a lot of facts and figures that were difficult to uh, obtain. Um, you know, it's journalism of, uh, that people don't want you to tell. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's got, it's got some moral force. Uh, and, you know, I'm all for that. Uh, and uh, some of my best friends are investigative journalists. Um, but really, I, uh, I think that a lot of it is kind of self-importance. Um, and um, most of what journalists should do when they're covering City Hall or covering um, the police beat or uh, sports or entertainment is think about the larger mechanisms for why something is happening and whose interests um, it's serving and whether that is actually good for society or not. And if you're kind of grounding yourself in these essential questions, you're basically an investigative journalist um, that needs to be reflected in your coverage somehow. So there's a distinction that the profession makes that I don't think should really be made. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and, before I got to ProPublica, it never even occurred to me that I was an investigative journalist. I was not that special breed of reporter. Um, but I did what, you know, on reflection was investigative journalism. I tried to expose um, business frauds all the time. That was the that was the thing I did. I just never thought of it as investigative. Um, but now, of course, uh, I do call myself an investigative reporter to impress people at parties. Yeah, and you, um, you indicated that uh, it, or it seems that you did it at its heart, all journalism should be investigative. I mean, uh, of course there's room for, uh, restaurant reviews and service journalism and people telling you, uh, uh, um, what happened, um, you know, and also, you know, uh, there was a, a wildfire. Here's the account of the wildfire. Um, so, there's a lot of journalism that shouldn't be investigative. Not every single story, individual story, should be investigative. But at some point, you want to understand um, what are the larger underlying forces that brought us those wildfires or produced this rather lousy set of movies um, or uh, why do um, why is there construction still on the 
Brooklyn Queens Expressway after 25 years. Um, you should just be kind of curious about the world, um, and your journalism should be kind of pointed in the direction of trying to figure out why things are happening. And, um, and you know, most things don't work very well, as you know, as everyone knows. Um, and, uh, and often they don't work because somebody's um, interest is in not having it work because it serves their financial interest or their, um, it keeps them powerful. Um, and so we like to ask those questions and just be endlessly curious about the world and try to figure out why things aren't working the way they could be working. Yeah, you know, I was listening to a story in NPR about um, health care and a, a bill that hadn't passed in a, a certain state. I, I forget the particulars of it, but it did strike me as the difference between, okay, there is something I should know about because I can vote on that. I can do a little more research on it. I can, you know, I, I can maybe be uh, in some way uh, affecting that in, in terms basically of my voting and being aware, as opposed to just hearing a news piece from California about some terrible incident that happened that it's sort of like, okay, well, it's not that I shouldn't know about that, but I there's nothing really that for me to do about it, so... I just kind of made that distinction in my own mind about what, you know, what affects me as a citizen as opposed to just like what I know happened. Right, right. Well, um, certainly, uh, of course, we um, we think about those decisions and those um, uh, that motivation all the time. And of course, human beings are naturally going to kind of gravitate to the things that affect them and directly and the things that interest them and, um, and not care about far, far away places to some extent. And, um, you know, we are, our mandate at ProPublica is to spur change, to have an impact. We want to identify people who are abusing power and, um, help the downtrodden. There's an old line about journalism that you, um, your job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, and I definitely believe that my job is every day to afflict the comfortable, and I don't feel happy if I have not afflicted some very powerful and wealthy person. Um, but, uh, you know, we, um, we, we do that because we want to have an impact fundamentally. Um, we want to spur change. We want to say this is wrong and this can change. We're not proposing how it should change, but we are proposing that people pay attention to these issues and these people um, and these victims and these, these wrongdoers. Well, it seemed like something, um, just to reference the chicken shit club for a second, like um, it would seem there's a deferred, uh, is it deferred prosecution or deferred sentencing? Yeah, exactly. Deferred prosecution agreements. Right. Now that seems to be something very specific that one would say, well, if you could just explain that to us uh, for the listeners for a second. Sure. Well, I mean, this is a um, a big, broad topic, but the um, the thumbnail um, argument, the point of the book, is that the Justice Department has lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives. We don't put CEOs in prison anymore for their crimes, and instead, we've replaced that with settling with corporations for money. That's the way we enforce corporate wrongdoing in this country these days. We settle 
with them for money. And, um, and that can take many forms. And one of the forms that it takes is uh, reaching a deferred prosecution agreement, which is a kind of technical term, but it really is just you, uh, you company, you JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or BP or Pfizer fork over uh, billions of dollars and uh, um, uh, and pretend that you're sorry for something and admit to uh, some uh, degree of wrongdoing and uh, promise not to do it again. Um, and my argument is this doesn't really work, that corporations are recidivists. Um, they keep doing wrong things and that this is just the price of doing business, cost of doing business, and um, that what would really work is getting back to um, the essence of deterrence, which would be prosecuting executives individually. And the chicken shit club is, if you could tell our reader that, because I find that fascinating. Sure. And so the argument is that the Department of Justice has become the chicken shit club writ large. And it comes from a line from a Jim Comey speech. And of course, Listeners will know Jim Comey um, probably because he was recently the FBI director who was fired by Trump. Um, it comes from a line when he was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. The Southern District of New York is the most prestigious office of the Department of Justice in the country. And they think of themselves, these criminal prosecutors who are in the Southern District, as the biggest hotshots and the best of the best. And um, Comey comes in uh, as the U.S. attorney and gathers them all together for a speech and says, uh, um, how many of you have never lost a case? And a bunch of the hands shoot up because they're so proud of their undefeated records. And he says, well, me and my buddies have a name for you guys. You're the chicken shit club. <laughs> and uh, they're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, they, their hands go down. And, um, and what he means by that, he goes on to explain, is that um, your job is not about winning. It's certainly not about winning at all costs. And it's not about accumulating an unbeaten record. Your job is about doing justice. And justice requires that you take on the most ambitious cases and the biggest wrongdoers and identify the things that are going wrong in society. And, um, and the argument, this is, he gives a speech in 2002. And the argument is that over the next uh, decade and a half, um, the Justice Department becomes, as I just said, the chicken shit club writ large, where we cannot prosecute um, top corporate executives. And um, I would argue that I even understate it in the problem in the book and that it's a much greater problem because um, it turns out that we are not going after tax cheats. The IRS has been decimated. And that's a series of stories that I've been doing with my colleague Paul Keel at ProPublica about how um, decimated and miserable a place the IRS is and how it's essentially almost given up on going after tax cheats and um, audited, audits have plummeted plummeted, especially the rich and corporations. Um, and the Mueller investigation uh, revealed that there are whole swaths of the economy that are relatively unpoliced, like campaign finance and corporate and political lobbying and um, high-end real estate. And so I think that we have essentially given up on prosecuting, investigating and prosecuting white-collar crime, um, and that this is a fundamentally dangerous thing um, that this is, you know, what, why should we care? And am, am I just out for blood? Am I just out to um, 
have rich people thrown in prison? And the, the answer is no, that this is a very important issue because it's about basic fairness in society and the legitimacy of uh, our laws, that we have the rule of law, that no one is above it, and the legitimacy of our very democracy is at stake because we cannot have a two-tier justice system where one um, group of people, disproportionately poor, disproportionately people of color, are harshly punished and another class of people uh, get no punishments at all when they do something wrong. Would you say um, members of the chicken shit club, well, it, it kind of uh, popped into my head that um, if somebody's got a 100% success rate, then maybe they are avoiding taking on the tougher cases that they think they might lose. Exactly. That's the point. That's the point Comey is making. And that's the point that I'm making is that they take on much easier cases. They go after the low hanging fruit and even avoid cases and uh, avoid these investigations and do the easier thing of settling with corporations for money because it's much easier to settle. Um, it's much lower risk. Um, you're not going to lose a trial. And um, you can reach those settlements pretty easily, and you can uh, roll those accomplishments into a um, job uh, at uh, in the private sector, which is uh, unfortunately a big part of um, the way our justice system works now, which is that the Justice Department is – uh, effectively a training ground for future corporate defense lawyers because um, there's a big revolving door. It struck me as quite alarming, some of those scenes where it seemed like the lawyers for the Justice Department were rather deferential to the the attorney for any of these corporations and the, the relationships uh, that <laughs> seemed a little too tight sometimes. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's a very cozy world um, full of uh, people who know each other and people who've worked with each other and people who um, are each other's bosses and um, who uh, and employees. And um, uh, and so that's a problem. That's a big problem. There's a lot of elite affinity. These guys are. Um, Prosecutors are being asked to prosecute the um, parents of their, um, you know, colleagues, law school colleagues and college buddies, and and their the those people are being defended by their future employers um, or their past employers. Um, this is just not a system that works. It's unfortunately pretty corrupt. It's a racket, um, and um, that was what I was trying to expose in the book. And it, um, it it almost seemed like there was a an understanding sometimes of once you get out of the prosecutor's office and you know th there's a job sort of waiting for you in the private sector if you kind of played ball a little bit while you're in the justice department in the prosecutor's yeah, office. Exactly, your incentive is to you know, be very impressive and work hard and um, uh, and be very smart. And these guys are very smart and very impressive. You know, by and large, prosecutors are extremely um, admirable people and intelligent um, people. Um, and, you know, they're individually ethical and they want to do a good job and they want to um, serve the public. And I admire all of that. 
but they their incentive structure is such that it's um, built so that they don't want to make waves. Um, they don't want to be viewed as cowboys who um, make trouble for people um, because that's not the way to get the job at the big law firms like Kirkland and Ellis and Deb Boys and Plimpton or Paul Weiss or any one of the you know, 10 or 15 firms, which is where a huge proportion of these guys go to. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of these prosecutors spend eight or nine years um, at the DOJ and then become corporate defense lawyers. Um, and that's a big problem. And um, so they don't want to be cowboys. They don't want to rock the boat. Um, and they also don't want to take big risks because if you take people to trial, individuals to trial, those guys, those, and they're mostly guys, you know, those CEOs have a lot of money, a lot of resources, and they're going to fight for a long time. And they're going to go to trial and they're going to try to convince juries that they didn't do anything wrong. And, um, and so you're going to run a risk of losing. And if you lose a few cases, you're going to look incompetent. And so they don't want to do that. Um, and so their incentive structure is, is really broken and they need to be protected from that institutionally. They need to give, be given different incentives to fix this problem. But, um, but so far there's uh, no fixes on the horizon. So, uh, well, that brings me back to, uh, to why I even brought this up in the first place. What I thought of it when you were talking about fixes, like it seems like deferred prosecution is something that is very pointed that, legislators could say, okay, that's not a good idea. We need to get rid of that. Um, um, maybe I'm, I'm obviously oversimplifying it. Um, that would be an interesting idea. Um, just get rid of uh, deferred prosecution agreements. Um, I think that the, um, you know, the legislature is very wary of, um, trying to dictate how prosecutors should do their jobs. Prosecutors, of course, in the executive branch, um, and they deal mostly with the judicial branch. But, um, you know, we give prosecutors a lot of discretion. Um, in fact, that's kind of a almost religious tenet of our justice system, that prosecutors have the discretion to take certain cases and not to take other cases. Um, and they don't, your legislatures are really cherry of um withdrawing that discretion and dictating how they should be um, prosecuting. But um, I think that there needs to be some kind of policy change where um, you don't ban deferred prosecution agreements, because I think that they could be useful in some cases, but that they really are viewed as a absolutely last resort, that what you do is you need to prosecute individuals. When you're, when you're reaching a deferred prosecution agreement, you're reaching it with a piece of paper. Right, a corporation is a piece of paper. Um, you know, when when Mitt Romney said it's a person, it's a person in a legal concept. But um, but it, corporations are made up of people, and human beings commit crimes at corporations, and so the human beings should be held accountable for that. Um, and uh, that's the way you deter corporate crime, because you these people are wealthy and they have um, you know they have stakes in society and they care about uh, their reputations. And so if you prosecute a CEO, other CEOs will pay attention to that. They, they're well-informed. 
Um, and so uh, that's the way I think that they should focus their attention. And then sometimes you have to prosecute a company criminally, which they don't, they're very reluctant to do because they don't want to um, cause collateral consequences. You know, they don't want to have a lot of people, um, uh, a lot of supposedly innocent employees put on the street and they don't want uh, a bank, big bank to fail that would cause economic fallout or the capital markets to collapse. Uh, so they have all these all these concerns with how to enforce the laws against companies. And my answer is this is solved by prosecuting an individual, not prosecuting a company itself. Like, well, like Kenneth Lay ended up in jail, correct? Right. So they used to do this in this country and not that long ago. Um, we never did it really well. You know, they, they rich and powerful have always been rich and powerful, of course, but um, you're referring to, the chairman and one of the founders and uh, CEOs of Enron. Enron was a spectacular accounting fraud in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, and collapsed. And it turned out that uh, there was an enormous amount of fraud there. And um, the Justice Department prosecuted uh, not just Ken Lay, but Jeff Skilling, who was the CEO as well, and the CFO, um, and a bunch of other top executives. Um, and uh, that was pretty successful. They weren't successful in everything, but they were pretty successful in um, a lot of those prosecutions and really devoted a lot of resources to it. And they were not afraid politically, even though uh, Enron and the Enron executives were um, very close to George W. Bush and the Republican Party. Um, so it was a kind of admirable um, prosecution in that sense because they weren't connected. They were very connected um, and they got prosecuted anyway. Yeah, and just uh, from the writing of it, I mean, you can see how complex it is and trying to present this to a jury in a way that they're going to understand. And it seems like it's so, the way you wrote it, it's so easy for a Kenneth Lay to obfuscate, you know, the malfeasance and all of that. I guess you could see how reluctant people might be to try to bring a case like that to court. Well, it's... This is, uh, and I don't want to leave people the impression that I think this is easy. This is very hard to do. Um, it's not an accident that um, uh, people avoid this kind of thing and that um, often they lose when they try to bring these cases to court. Um, these cases are very, very difficult to bring. Um, and they're very difficult to bring fundamentally because you have to, um, it, unlike a murder, um, or unlike a drug deal, you know, there's a kilo of coke on the table in a drug deal. In the murder, there's a body. And in a white-collar crime, you first have to figure out, is there a crime there? Um, and then you have to figure out, did they know it was a crime? Did they know that they were um, doing something wrong? So you have to get to the state of mind of the criminal and demonstrate that beyond a reasonable doubt in court. Um, and that they they had the intention to break the law. It's pretty hard to do that. Um, you know, you'll, you saw Robert Mueller um, uh, investigating the Russia collusion compromise um, um, investigation, and it's very hard to have produce evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that um, anybody in the Trump administration knowingly took something from the Russian government while exchanging something else back to them. Um, that's all very difficult in the criminal uh, world to try to, uh, you know, the criminal jurisprudence world to try to prove. Well, it seems like the very nature of a corporation is to 
uh, obfuscate responsibility. I mean, like no one's really the owner of the company, so who's responsible? It's it, it certainly to diffuse responsibility. Um, uh, you know, not necessarily to obfuscate it all the time, um, but inherently it compartmentalizes and diffuses responsibility. And also, um, uh, there are lots of different um, advisors and people who are responsible responsible for various things. And you have legal weighing in on things and accountants weighing in on things. So, um, you know, CEOs often say, look, I didn't think this was wrong. And I ran it by my lawyers and my accountants and they didn't think it was wrong either. So how can you commit, how can you accuse me of committing a crime? Um, and that, uh, often wins the day. Well, you know, uh, to juxtapose that I, I was, um, reading through, uh, some of your stories online and, all of that is is like an Enron or you know things of that nature are can be very gray and very hard. But this one you wrote about, and I just I, I don't think I really wrote a quote, but it's a paraphrase. Manhattan DA Cy Vance says he will no longer accept contributions from lawyers with cases in front of him. Yeah, and that almost made me laugh out loud because <laughs> I thought, Didn't why would anyone? Why would anyone even have to sit? Why would that even be an issue? Isn't that amazing? I mean, um, you know, uh, we have big campaign finance problem in this country. Uh, and one of them is that uh, lawyers um, run for office and they take money from uh, lawyers who have cases before them. That's um, pretty, uh, it's pretty obscene. Um, that stemmed, that story stemmed from um, a story we wrote uh, with um, the local public radio station here, WNYC, about, and it was my story with a couple other reporters that um, Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, had investigated Donnie Trump Jr. and Ivanka for fraud um, in the selling of one of their buildings, the Trump Soho. And they had um, made up sales quotes, sales numbers, um, had misrepresented the buyers um, in this kind of way that seemed material to the actual price of the apartments. They said, oh, these are selling like hotcakes, but they made up literal numbers and the numbers were way different from the numbers of things that they were actually selling. So they were saying, you know, it's 60% sold when it was really you know, around less than 15% sold. And they had emails back and forth with each other saying things like, uh, well, you know, we can't say that it was 60% sold because we said that last week. So let's say it was set, it's 70% sold this week. So that, you know, goes to the state of mind issue. And um, prosecutors wanted to bring that case at the Manhattan DA and Vance overruled them and uh, said no. And before he did that, Donald Trump's personal lawyer um, both donated to his campaign and had a private meeting with him. Or not a private meeting, but a um, a it was able to arrange a meeting with him. Um, and, uh, and so that, and then subsequently Vance overruled his team and decided not to bring that case. So that was what he was responding to was that kind of thing. So, you know, campaign finance is one of these areas that uh, needs a lot of scrutiny from reporters like uh, ProPublica reporters, because those kind of things happen pretty often, sadly. Now, uh, uh, could a John Q. public like myself translate that into a bribe? Translate that into a what? A bribe. A bribe. I mean, you know, uh, the 
Supreme Court has narrowed the definition of what bribes are um, in um, the political context. Uh, so I think that the way the law works is that there has to be a direct quid pro quo for something. Um, you know, you give me money and you understand that I'm going to deliver this thing for you. You give me gifts. Um, uh, and so I think the, the law has gotten really very, very far away from um, what should be the what the way society should be. And we need massive, massive changes in our campaign finance laws to try to prevent this kind of stuff. But right now, um, everybody can get away with it because um, nobody has to say that there's a quid pro quo. Everybody understands that um, it's often the case. And, you know, they're competing interests, so they're competing uh, things that offset the incentives. Um, so it's not always corrupt all the time, but there is an underlying corruption that's really troubling. I mean, there could be the presumption that that money came from the client through the personal attorney and <laughs> it's, was seen as a fee to the lawyer when, in fact, it was a, you know, disguised campaign contribution. Uh, Good. Yeah. Um, so I was just, this is kind of a broad question, I guess, but how is the average American making maybe sixty to $75,000 a year treated in this economy? How, how are they seen in this economy? Like, you know, we hear about Enron, we hear about, you know, bank bailouts and multi-billions of dollars. And I was just wondering your thoughts on like, what what's somebody like me who makes, you know, not even in that salary range, like where do we fit or where, how does this affect us? Um, um, you know, uh, and then I got to go, uh, Matt, because I'm sure. um, uh, going to get back to work. But the... Um, the economy is deeply unfair to the average working person. Um, we pay our taxes. The wealthy people get away with tax evasion. Um, we, we obey the law or pay consequences. Um, the wealthy often don't obey the law and don't have any consequences. We have very little ability to affect um, policy from government and the wealthy and corporations have great uh, ability to change policies in their direction. Um, and um, so, you know, capital has a lot of power and labor has very little power. So we have very little ability to um, bargain with our employers to get our wages up. Uh, these are all um, unfair things that have stacked the uh, economy and society against the average person um, and in favor of the wealthy and powerful. Um, wealthy and powerful have used the their power to reduce their taxes, uh, to reduce regulation, to make uh, our water less safe, to make our air less safe, to um, make the planet dangerous for people, to um, have products that uh, are poisoning people, um, to make our food relatively less safe, to make our drugs unreliable. Um, you know, not in every case, obviously. Um, we can still go through the day very easily not getting poisoned, and um, we go through the day uh, taking medicine that works. But um, all too frequently, these things don't happen. Um, and that's because the wealthy and powerful are rigging the system to their advantage and to the disadvantage of um, not just the poor, but the disappearing middle class. All right. Hey, thanks very much. Uh, that was Jesse Isinger, and um, that was a great conversation. Thanks a lot.
All right. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.